0: it's Chris. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You don't have to do any of that work. In addition, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hello. Welcome to The Situation and the Story podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moore. Queer feminist sober killjoy, a writer and an educator living in the Capitol Hill area of Denver. I'm diagnosed with panic disorder, agoraphobia, general anxiety disorder, and major depressive disorder. This lethal combo has made it a challenge for me to attend readings, panels, conferences, even my MFA classes. Despite my mental health issues, I never stopped wanting to connect with those in my writing community. I created this podcast so that you can connect remotely with writers in all stages of their careers, so you can uncover what happens behind the page, discover what drives them to the page, and learn how they grow their craft. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. In my first episode, I sat down with Tara Shea Burke to talk about her recently published collection of poetry, Animal Like Any Other. It was published in September of this year by Finishing Line Press. Tara is a queer poet and teacher from the Blue Ridge Mountains in Virginia. She's a writing instructor, editor, creative coach, and yoga teacher who has taught and lived in Virginia, New Mexico, and Colorado. She believes in community building and practice-based living, writing, teaching, and art. And she just so happens to be my ex. First question I'm going to ask every guest mm. is why do you write? It's not. What is the spiritual background of your childhood?
1: No. Although that, no. that, that, that's that's a good idea. No, you can't steal Krista Tippett. <laughs> um, Why? What a great day um, to ask that because we did this yesterday. longer and more conversationally. And then I spent the day kind of thinking about things that came up the way we talked about it. And one was like, how much the insistence of writing, especially when you get a chance to talk about it in relationship to like the body and memory and, um, making a life, uh, can just like suddenly be like, like on the, um, like on your skin after having a t- conversation, like all day, I felt and thought about writing and thought about living kind of fully. Um, and it really shifted my day in a way that was really beautiful because I, because I'd been thinking about it, about the urgency. And I took a bath and I was reading Ocean Vongs on Earth were briefly gorgeous. And it kind of midway took, um, took a turn towards the part in the memoir where his relationship with a young, A young man that he grew up with um, just becomes pretty dire and pretty I don't want to ruin it Um, but it's a letter to his mom and it's a novel that's also a memoir that's also like lyric essay that's also has like moments of pure poetry and I thought about how we can do whatever the fuck we want (laughs) and yes like there's something to be learned from studying and knowing but I don't necessarily think that Studying and knowing means always means MFA and somebody in charge telling you the right way and getting you into practices that help you. Though that's great and I needed that. But like just reading that book is kind of teaching me something about how when a story needs a voice and needs language, it will, and you listen and you deeply commit to the practice of like how is this gonna come out? it comes out the way it fucking comes out and it mm. it's kind of a choice and it's kind of not it's kind of like derivative of the um <clears throat> of what's happening and and the feeling in your bodies and the and the memories and the psychology and then I spent the night with like earplugs in my ears in my office listening to this album I hadn't listened to since like 2002. We're going to need the name of that. Mm. Um, It's Lake Trout, another one lost. And it's very, like, jam bandy, but there's, like, other shit going on. And it's, like, there's uh, brass and there's, like, random flutes. And it's kind of, like, on the verge of rave culture when I was doing a bunch (laughs) of drugs. And I didn't know I wanted to listen to that, but, like, as I was – sitting down saying, I want to write tonight, and I need to kind of just like, get into it. Um, I don't know, like this insistence on telling a story I haven't told yet came out of me. And as I was writing, I was talking back to myself, like, okay, you don't remember this. Yes, you do. I sort of remember this. Oh, where were you? You were sitting on the mountainside at two in the morning and there was this like light shining down and all these little white hippie kid faces in West Virginia. And like, you were all kind of swaying and okay, what were you on? Were you on acid? I don't know. Oh, maybe I was on acid. Did I eat a mushroom? (laughs) I'm not really sure, but I know something was happening. And I remember looking, you know what I mean? And I just kind of like going. And at the end of it, I was like, you know, I don't know if that's a scene for something or not, but it, But it came out and it came out with this like insistence because I, you know, kept closing my eyes and following the memory. And that is actually why I write because it's those moments that really surprise me um, that like memory is, is a thing you can construct and meaning is a thing you can, you can play with. Um, And maybe sometimes you can't, maybe it, Plays with us, but all of that kind of happens in this, like, really. I want to say mystical dance, but I mean mystical in the sense of the very real human body, like as it exists on this earth when we're not a puppet for anything else. Mm.
0: (laughs) This idea of learning in the classroom, learning how to write in the classroom, and how it's not really the only way to do it. Mm. I agree. It's interesting because I'm finishing up my MFA. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you. I graduate in January mm-hmm. and I just wrote the preface to my manuscript, wherein we explore like the process of the last two years and how how the manuscript came together and evolved and how we evolved as writers. And I noticed most of my learning just came through reading, mm. not through yeah. classes and sometimes not even through conversation, though I love my mentor. Right. Name her. Adrian Calfoppolo. She's amazing.
1: Yeah, she is. And because you she's been your mentor and you've mentioned her before. I've I've followed a little bit of some of her work and nice.
0: And that's By kind of all... the magic
1: of it too, right? Is these programs are kind of strange and we realize like, do we need it or do we not need it? And I can shame myself so often for being like, I wish I could have just been that writer that didn't need to sit in the classroom for three years and take all that those loans out and like Could have just (laughs) made tables and written the books and believed in my art and believed in reading. But also, I wasn't. I wasn't Elizabeth Gilbert. You know what I mean? She did that. I think that's amazing. Like, she worked her way through and believed in writing and formed writing groups and didn't get an MFA. And like, you know what I mean? Like, she... Yeah. And that's possible. And I'm I, I want to share that with more young people and be like, you can do both. But also like, I don't know if I could have had the community and met the people and learned about the writers I learned about if I would have just been like wandering around bartending at night, checking out books, you know,
0: so. Yeah, I definitely could not have done it. So I have regrets, <laughs> like financial mm. regrets, for sure. Oh, yeah, don't we all? Like, Oh, student loans are going into repayment in a month and uh, constantly defer them like I do. It's fine. (laughs) Yeah. But I'm in the same boat as you at the, at the point in my life where I applied, I never could have done that on my own. Do you know the poet? I'm probably going to say her name wrong. Elizabeth uh, Velasquez. It sounds familiar, but no, I don't think I am familiar. She's amazing. Follow her on Instagram. Okay. Um, (laughs) I didn't graduate high school, I believe, then got a GED, but she was at AWP last year Mm. in a panel called uh, The Mother Wound. Oh, this is something I've been talking about with my therapist. Yeah, and it was the room was stacked wall to wall. People were sitting on the floor, sitting in the back, out like coming out of the door. So good. But anyway, recently she she kind of went on a little radical angry tirade about this idea of you can't be a writer without reading. Yeah, you can't.
1: Oh, I do know who you're talking about. Yeah.
0: Well, she was arguing against that idea. Mm, interesting. Because it was kind of like this privileged argument can you be more clear about what that argument was? Because I don't know what you're. Yeah, she is. was, she was, she was saying how she didn't read growing up. Yeah. She didn't have time. She yeah. was, you know, she had an absent mother, like they, they were poor. They, she got pregnant at a really young age. She wasn't like a, an avid reader, but once. She got out of i don't know that mind that environment or those circumstances she had stories to tell she's an incredible poet mm. <clears throat> but she was like, this is not true like don't let people <clears throat> excuse me tell you that." Just because you weren't, you know, reading or enjoying your English classes in high school, that you can't be a writer. I think that's a really important point to make. Yeah. I I
1: also want us to be more clear than about that argument. Like, I often see um, the pushback that I relate to a lot, like, when it comes to, like, hey, that's a privileged ideology. And it always really is like, oh, yeah, that's true. And it's also naming something that's true for me, too. Like, I grew up reading in a very poor household, but I wasn't reading all the time. We watched TV constantly, we were surviving. Yeah. Um, In high school, I wanted to be a cheerleader and this is what I was writing about last night I think I'm finally going to go into some stories about you know we were talking about the monster inside like the 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 part of me I don't necessarily want to share with others That, like anyway I you know I wanted to be a cheerleader I wanted to do drugs like I wanted to I wanted to take ephedra I wanted to um, (laughs) yeah I wanted to suffer Um, yeah and it wasn't like a privileged choice it was a there was already suffering that I was trying to kill with a, right. another kind of suffering, and I, that wasn't clear to me until recently. But but anyway, like I, it wasn't until I got to college and I started to kind of fall apart that I realized I have stories to tell too. And I and then books also helped me. And you know, all of our teachers, I think, all they're trying to say is, well, once it's time to write those stories, it's time to read, right. I, I know I know that when my teacher – and I don't want to defend what other people say or – because I actually think that's a really valid, important point. But I know what my teacher, Tim Siebels, is saying. And he was sitting with all of us in our classrooms because I had him for – in like 2003 um, when I was – snorting lines of cocaine uh, in Norfolk, Virginia, and trying to figure – like thinking that was the way the creative muse was going to come out of me. And sometimes it right. didn't, but it often didn't make <laughs> sense later. Yeah. Um, but then like going to these poetry classes and just like begging like, oh, this art, this – how do I <clears throat> <make> connect this <throat> to this art? He would look at us and see our writing and and show us a few poems by a few writers. And he would realize that we weren't reading. And so the, yeah. and so the exercise and and, and students don't like, and that's okay. Um, I think that it's too easy to be like, there's something wrong with them when they don't, there's a, there's a real problem with our society when we think that like students just don't read cause they don't want to like my students want to read they can't sit down and, and focus and mm. it's not their fault. <laughs> it's yeah. so many other things in society and also their backgrounds and their histories. And that was mine as well, um, because I wanted desperately to read and to be as smart as the people I looked up to. Um, and I was also an adolescent, you know, like we forget like the stages of cognitive development, but anyway, he would find yeah. things and we would sometimes read them, but he knew, and he, he was saying like, if you really want to get better at writing, you just have to keep reading. So it was less of like, you didn't read, and that's a problem, more of like, once you decide to write these stories, here are some great exercises that will probably make you a better writer. But if I'm honest, the people I know that were doing kind of interesting writing but not really, like, reading a ton more. Their writing was suffering something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's really powerful to say, like, we don't need to study and we don't need the privilege to read and we don't need to have grown up with, like, cool journalist parents. I'm thinking of one of my students right now, her parents right. are and she is just, like, profoundly intelligent. And she's also suffering with other um, – things as well and struggling to stay in the classroom for, for other reasons. But when she writes, I'm like, girl, like, I don't even, I have nothing to show you at this stage. Like go to level 200, like,
0: and I mean that I can
1: show her some things, but it's like the majority of her students are, you know, of her fellow classmates, I need to focus on other things that she's already got. But like, that is true, right? Like you don't need to have read in order to have a story to tell. Right, but like once it 's time to tell stories like or once it 's time to write, I do think that having the capacity to sit alone and to find your teachers and to read through the books you 're reading and then letting yourself be in conversation with them um is perhaps I would say the only way, but i don't really like the only way, so I also like that she 's pushing back against the idea that there's there 's one way. Uh, Because I do think that stories are oral and aural, right? And like if you grew up in a house where no one read, but everybody was really poignantly funny and had a really interesting voice or funny or horrific even, and like stories were just like existing in a different form, not in books on the page, then that of course will want you to make you want to write or tell more stories as well. So I just like, I want it to be more poly, like vocal or poly kind of inclusive. Yeah, Um, to
0: be clear... I'm glad you asked me to clarify her argument, Elizabeth Velasquez. That is the argument that right. I've read. Argument. Yeah, she's definitely not. I mean, she's a hella avid reader now. Yeah, she's not arguing that. You yeah, know, you don't. You don't have to read. To for you, sure, right? and I, I hear her. Yeah, yeah. So, thanks for clarifying that. Yeah.
1: Well, and I think the conversation is important for us all to have. I like when people argue against it. 'Cause I am on her side for sure. And then that opens the conversation to be less kind of like tweety and Instagram y, which I like those things. And more of like, well, let's talk about what all of these things are nuanced about. I mean, and what oh, yeah. we're both thinking about is that I also don't want to regret my MFA. Like I don't I don't want you to regret your MFA. I want you to celebrate it. Like I want you to you know what I mean? Like I'm yeah. and also that doesn't mean that sometimes we don't sit down and wish like, God damn it, I wish I had something a little different well, or Our society offered us some other path
0: yeah I I was not an avid reader growing up I mean I read sometimes as a, a young kid um but high school was a mess I remember a couple a couple pieces of literature from junior and senior year but I almost failed high school and so I've wrestled with that self-doubt that narrative like oh, I, I can't be a writer like I yeah, don't so I don't know, literature. So it's a really helpful narrative to hear like,
1: Hey, this is somebody who's published who did not sit around reading most of their life until recently. Yeah. That's kind of why I want to champion that argument too. It's like, doesn't matter what, so maybe it just doesn't matter what comes before, you know? Um, it matters if the call, the desire, the need arises. And then we, I mean, that's a really interesting thought to sit with, like, because that kind of trickles out into so many other things. Like, do you have to have had stability? Do you know? I mean, of course, that would have helped. And you're a writer because you're writing. Like, if you want to write, you write. Yeah. Like, let's remove this from the hands of the fucking dominant. I think about this a lot, like, because people, I do think, and somebody asked me this the other day, and I'm going to hold fast to this, that everyone's an artist. Um and I mean artists, not in the sense of like the way we've made art, being an artist a job or a career or even a vocation, like that the human body is a creative, has a creative function, like is a creative force and has a creative drive. Like when you're children, you run, you move, you walk, you play, you sing, you like color or art, you know, you make things. Solve problems. Yeah, exactly, which is creative. Right. Solve problems, our logical math makes sense because it's the way the world is, not because it's the thing you have to study the way they want you to study it. You know, like all of those things are creative. And so, science, science is creative. Science is the research process is creative um, because you must sit with a question and learn something and then move, right? So, like, I, I do believe that we all have that in us and then it's stifled,
0: you know. I um, think there's such a thing as bad writing. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but,
1: but bad when we're talking about um, relationship to the reader. Not, not – reg- <sighs> and in some ways, like, the system – yeah, I'm going to problematize this. Like, I say yes and I say no, and I mean both. Like, um, the system isn't all bad, right? Like, if we're teaching things in a way that, like um, – in my college classroom, I do teach like rhetoric in a way that's about audience. And so, but it it is still a part of like a systematic understanding of language and rules and good writing and bad writing. Um, so that is true, but also like, I come back to the audience and I come back to the relationship to a reader or a receiver or a listener every time. So like, it's not bad because and maybe the grammatical structure is a part of that. I don't know. I think it's more nuanced than like, that's bad writing right. and that's good writing. Um, it's like, who are you writing to and why are you writing to them? And can they hear you? And is it sitting and resonating the way you want it? That's, that's super profound. <laughs> um. But that's also old. Like that's, that's Aristotle and Plato and also like, and also it's, like pre-colonial and pre-Columbian and it's, it's in storytelling since the beginning of time. Are you standing in a circle with your peers, with your community um, reaching them? Is it causing, is it causing celebration or grief or, or, or or collect or entertainment? Like entertainment is valuable art, you know? Do you Um, think
0: that's why confessional writing is often criticizes naval gazing Do you think that's because it doesn't seem to have an audience in mind?
1: I think, too, and over, um, perhaps, let's call it um, a very white, male, quote-unquote, reasonable, logical, let's only think about ideas and philosophy um, gaze or Priority. Somebody looking closely at themselves um, when the world has said what they how they exist doesn't matter to you and you don't need to consider their life. Um, of course, seems like navel gazing without an audience. But I've read plenty of confessional work in all genres and gotten a ton from it. That perhaps a particular system of intelligence would deem um, navel gazing. they write about their, it's like, even if let's like take that metaphor down, right? Like say I read a really beautiful poem about a woman considering her actual nasal. Like I, that could be the most powerful poem I've read all year, if done in mind to consider the self in a way that connects to other people who haven't looked at the belly. Like I'm even like really interested in that metaphor of the belly right now, like, and and female belly. So it makes sense to me um, that we would even call a woman, and we're talking about women, or femme humans, or queer humans, or um, or non-binary, or any minority. Actually, we are talking about any minority looking at oneself closely and trying to figure out what's going on and why do I carry pain, right? Or 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 anything. Um, No wonder that it's called navel gazing. I I think about the control of the the torso um, of the body in this world and both like women and minority culture. I mean, I I just saw Harriet. I'm also thinking about the way... um, other bodies have been controlled and put into pain. I don't want to name things so nonchalantly. Um, and I do think about the power of the space in the core and the torso. Like, what if I fucking looked at myself closely for a long time? Somebody will read that and love it. Like, who, who is saying? You know what I mean? Like, I know you are with me on this because it's like, conf- like Jericho Brown talked about this, I think, in an AWP panel. Every fucking time you put a word on the page, it's confessional. Like, confess what? To whom? You know what I mean? Like, this is, um, the word of that with the way we've, like, allowed it to carry a negative connotation. Please let's all confess our sins, like, together. Like, I I don't – I think I've – I used to push back on this. And then in my MFA, I even kind of wrote about why I thought that was just, like, insanely stupid. And I think we're getting much better now, particularly with um, allowing more people to write. But, like, I don't know. I think, yeah, that is why I think people would call that such. But it definitely considers an audience if it's considering itself because it's considering somebody else who has been that self too, right? So, like, if it's shitty writing, it's just – And this happens, um, even in the long 800 book, you know, books about oneself that are not, you know, what one would call confessional, but let's like, let's be honest, like David Foster Wallace was confessing a lot, right? Like he, (laughs) like to call that not confessional, just because it was like of, um, a tortured mind kind of thinking, like, that's not fair, right? That is just as much confessing. Like, what is it to have a mind like this? Um, and to put it into characters on the page, you know, like um, it, not just in the, the perhaps confessional or writing about oneself and one's pain realm, but also like in general, like it's shitty writing when it's when it hasn't been processed enough to be given. And I actually do think about Glennon Doyle with this because she wrote about, she wrote several memoirs that one would call like chick lit or whatever, or like the same shit everybody writes. Um, And she has a beautiful voice and it's not overcomplicated, but it's extremely in depth about her pain and her body and what it was like to be a woman with an eating disorder and to want things and to stay with a husband who was cheating on her and then to make a life and come out while she was on book tour. Like I think about this a lot because this this book that I wrote couldn't exist a couple years ago because it was still too painful. Yeah, that's um, where I was
0: going to go with this. You wrote a book that's really not shitty. Thank you. <laughs> and you have said... Yeah, you can tell it me about... No, you said it was like seven years in the making. hmm hmm And actually, the name of this podcast comes from a book Yeah, about... <laughs> by Vivian Gornick called The Situation and the Story. And it's about how writers need a level of detachment from the situation in order to make the story.
1: Yeah, I
0: love that. So tell us about that around your book, Animal Like Any Other.
1: Yeah, thank you for asking that, because that's something I, I think I need to articulate and even in my own process.
0: Um... I thought I was ready to write this memoir. Some of the trauma in the memoirs from 20 years ago. Right. It's like surely I have enough distance and therapy under my belt to approach the story but I I really think it was part of why I became depressed. Once that first draft was done, I was like, "Oh god." <laughs> like and I drank constantly through the writing of it, which is not something I want to do and not but it's it's a protective measure like we talked about yesterday yeah. before our 100 minutes of Audio got (laughs) lost. (laughs) So it made me realize, huh, maybe you're you don't have enough distance from this. And distance is not just about years that have passed.
1: Well, let's be clear. Um, you won't get the distance until you start the writing either. Like there's a certain kind of distance that comes from time, um, and then our relationship to what we're doing to our story and with our story and trauma in time. Um, So someone could have 20 years distance from a trauma, and I know you don't, you know, but like, and never have actually processed it, talked about it enough, and gone to therapy. Um, And it will exist in the body in the exact same way the moment you come to it, you know, like that is, you know, part of a lot of the interesting science coming out about the body and PTSD and CPTSD and trauma is like, When my dad started drinking again, he was the same drunk that he was when I was four years old, Um, even though there was 20 some years between that time because he never talked about it or processed it. the distance that one needs and I think about this a lot because I think it can become another um, kind of problematic rule like the distance only going to be the distance when you know it's the distance right like so I knew when I was writing that I was writing that book when I was still with my ex and a lot of it's about our breakup um, and I was actually writing about the pain of how disconnected I felt from my ex um, and publishing some of those poems while we were together. And she would like read them and be like, great job, babe. And I'd be like, okay, cool. <laughs> like, I mean, but she also, knew. she also knew there was like something happening between us. And I did too. And if I think about it now, I think, yeah, we, we knew or, or I was just her weird art girl, arty girlfriend who knew, like, I mean, yeah. I, she didn't talk to me. So, and she wouldn't answer So she and she didn't let me process. So but I was trying to get that book out. I sent it maybe to like 30 publishers that year when I was still with her in New Mexico. And then I it did, you know, it got denied a lot. And then we broke up and I moved to Denver like on the fly in a van with my dog. Um, and that during that year, I kind of wrote some new poems, um, but I didn't, I, and I would go back to some of those and like mess with them, but I instead was writing a lot. So it was like, I was still writing and I was writing about how I was feeling and it was like super close. Um, and I knew that like none of it could be a book because it was just like the raw feelings of everything I was going through. And even like posting and sharing it online, which was really useful for me, And then having a little bit of a blog about the grief process was really powerful. But eventually I deleted it all, not because I thought it was bad writing, but because I thought that was too close to the wound and I needed it. But I don't want it to exist in conversation with people anymore. Like the conversation it created was helpful because I made a community. Like I met new people. And I know some people were like, thank you, because you're writing very honestly about your life and your grief and your breakup in ways that we don't talk about. And I got divorced two years ago, and I haven't processed it and all the shit, right. But it wasn't until I started putting it all together, like another like a year or so later, and like looking back at all those poems, and then putting them in conversation and writing them and rewriting them and changing the form that I was like, Oh, this is what this is what distance means, but I, but I thought I had distance then, you know, it's like you don't know. And so you can't force the right amount or the wrong amount of distance. Like, and they're in the writing process. I found that distance because I could feel and see when I was writing about a wound that I like needed somebody to validate instead of. A wound that I have validated within myself now and learned and moved through for the most part. I don't believe there's any like learned, healed over ever. Like we are always in healing process. Like, and so there is no like end game. Um, But, but I could feel it differently when I was more settled and more able to like put things in conversation and I didn't need anybody else to tell me like, or to connect with me or to see my pain. Like it was just, I'm seeing my own pain with some time here. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it's super interesting. I think that's why I don't want to even open the document of my first draft anymore, because it served a purpose. And I think it's the same as kind of like you talked about your blog and grieving through that. I think that first draft, even with all the processing I've done, was still too close. So I'm super excited to, after I graduate, you know, reopen this thing and rewrite it. But I don't want, I don't want the first draft you know, to be in the world, like you said, kind of,
1: well, thank God. I mean, like, I think that's the, that's the cool part is like, I do think there's this like initiation into like people that I think are too hungry for the, like, for, Like celebrity, -um. I know that like poets and nonfiction writers aren't really celebrities, but they can be. That's me. Well, I am too. I love attention and I really (laughs) do want to be friends with all the cool people. And I know you and we know each other. If we were to check in deeply with, say, when we see people kind of like, you know, prostrating themselves towards others and like, you know, just being really uncomfortably in need of community and always angry and whatever, Mm. like, that's like, if I look deeply inside, I don't necessarily want to be friends with all the people I consider a celebrity in the poetry community just for the sake of that. They're the people that I've sat with with books on my, you know, body that have taught me something. Right. So there is a community desire there, right, that I think is valuable um, now, of course, the silliness of it all, we can joke about that all day, but like, no, there's a desire to be connected to people who have spoken in a way that has made sense to you and allowed you to come to terms with who you are. And the initiation into that is now I have a first draft. And guess what? All those people that we revere have first
0: drafts and second drafts and third drafts that, are, that were their wounds too. That's why I created this podcast so that you know we could connect with without having to seem desperate you can still you know hear what's going on behind the page
1: so animal like any other is um It is a book where I wanted to look at relationship and love and particularly like lesbian bodies in love and these very domestic kind of, um, not normalcy, but like mediocrity. Um, This everydayness, this dailiness, this domesticity, um, this desire to create a home in love with one another. Um, in conversation Mm -hmm. with the home I have been sort of running from and sort of wanting to be different um, my whole life. And it wasn't until, you know, I talked a little bit about that breakup and the process of writing that year kind of did allow me to, you know, feel the – to name – like, again, like I think that writing is a way to name the wound before you – like as you're creating distance too. Like like and one way is therapy and one way is talking and having community of like minded individuals or whatever. And one way is actually to write your way through the wound. And then mm-hmm. in a few years you can look back on that or in a few months or whatever the timeline is that is yours, right? Like you look back on that and you can then start to craft it and create the distance you need, right? Like but you have to see it first. You have to see it clearly. And so this book was was a way that like when I was starting and I still don't feel settled, the trauma of how my relationship ended and also the trauma of my family is, is loud in my life right now, louder than I ever thought possible. Um, and I, and I knew it was coming and I, and I prepared for it. And I also could never have prepared for the past few months of my life. Um, and, but that year when things started to feel more settled, I started putting these family poems um, in conversation with these relationship poems. I thought they were two different books or I thought they were like two different chat books maybe. I also thought that I wasn't ever going to be able to return to some of those family poems. Um, I thought like they just weren't like good enough and I couldn't like in line, like most of the family poems in there are the big chunky block prose, kind of like lyric essay poems. And, um, and they're the ones that, are really, I think, the most interesting because I had, like, kind of written them off many times. Um, I was, like, every time I tried to put them in um, more traditional lined poems on the page, they were, like, too cheesy. And, you know, we talked about this yesterday, like, tying things up in a little bow. It was, like, I was trying really hard to, like, tie things up in a little happy home Or I either hate my family and they're horrible or I love my family despite um and these Mm. like these prose poems beside like the trajectory of the relationship poems like allowed me to create like this kind of unfinished doorway because now I also know I look back and I'm like there's so much more I do want to write about my family particularly um now that my father has passed unexpectedly and my mother's health has has um revealed some things about the kind of inaction and desire in my body that I'm playing with in this book so a lot of it is like poems that are like oh look how much I wanted and didn't have at home Um, and all and all I did have as well all the things put on top of not having and also like all the the ways that not getting and at home translated to a like a deep desire to get everything from my partner And then there's an insistence and there are poems in there that are also old that I didn't know I wanted to go in there until I also started putting it together because I didn't want the book just to be about, look how much emotional trauma of childhood affects the way we love. Um, I also wanted it to be, watch me try to write Mm -hmm. my way back into
0: existence. Yeah. I feel like we have similar approaches (laughs) to our writing. Um, Yeah. The temptation Yeah. make it linear, or make it neat is something I've struggled with a lot through writing this first draft. And again, God bless my mentor. <laughs> she's she's from Athens, <laughs> Greece, and has many years of wisdom on me and is able to say, look, like, and I think this is part of queering the writing process is not falling prey to that desire to like make it linear and make it neat. Either I hate my family or I love them, mm-hmm. but no, it's like all of those things. And the little snippet on the back of your book that the review that stephen dunn wrote he talks about the energetic Mm -hmm. relationships between people between things between homes between multiple selves until the between is no more so that's something i think you do really well it's not one or the other
1: thank you yeah it's great to have people like look closely Mm -hmm. at your work too because and I always would hear writers say this and not and be like, whatever, you were thinking about that. But it's helpful because it's like as a teacher, I can say this too, is like the felt sense of what you're moving towards matters more. And then having other people, mentors, MFA programs, and other writers that let you that that will take care of you, you know. Um, we'll read you closely to take care of you. And I don't mean only praise, but just read you closely and consider what is this. Um, have that kind of ability to see like, this is what you're doing. And I think we need all of that, right? Like I'm kind of against this whole writing must happen in a vacuum by oneself oh. and alone, despite only, despite it happening alone, right? Like the actual literal act of it, but that's not always true either. Like I've written many things in, you know, and also collaborated in interesting ways late in the past few years that have shaken up that idea as well. Um, but there's something that has to happen in it again in the receiving of the work, um, in order to help it make sense, you know, and, and it's, it would have been, and let me just be really clear, really hard for me to hear that a couple of years ago. Um, this kind of blurred, this, this multiple selves, this like multiple ideas, this, um, it's still a little embarrassing that these poems that are big and chunky and hard to read, because um, I've read them now a few times in front of people, and they were they were, and I've read them a million times to myself with the kind of urgency I desire when I'm alone and I'm reading, and it makes a lot more sense when I'm reading them out loud to myself, and then in front of an, and then in front of an audience, there is a little like tinge of embarrassment and shame, but it makes sense that those poems would be the ones about my family mm. where all that shame came from. Um, but again, I wouldn't have been able to kind of like hear what people say about my work and people, meaning the few hundred that, you know, it exists in their hands and probably will the only people it be, maybe a few more. And that's fine. I made that choice purposefully. because that like idea that this is like really accessible has been said and also like – It's insanely intense and sad and heartbreaking. And I learned so much about you and all those things are true and fine. But, um, you know, coming from an MFA program and coming from a culture, even though I've had teachers that were against this, like that accessibility is a bad thing, um, I think it's fucked up because – and I'm actually really grateful that I'm moving towards other work in the world that's about radical accessibility because, again, like when I'm talking about the belly and the body and I'm talking about, like, why the fuck would we not want to be accessible? Right. <laughs> like, I, I get that. Like, and I do think, like, in the past, like, you know, 50 or 60 years when um, higher education has kind of opened up the doorway to many different Um, um, non-privileged human beings having access to education and language in ways that other people hadn't or it was kept from them you know and I want to be radically accessible right like my friend who lives on the street my middle school best friend who she doesn't know it yet but she's gonna work her way into the next book because (laughs) we have some stories to tell about bodies and um disorders, Yeah, who has two babies and is incredibly intelligent and reads, but she runs a daycare out of her home, um, is literally always has children on her hip and is amazing and full of life and incredibly connected to spirit in a way that I really love and also is just busy and can't pick up a book to read. Like she was able to read this at that be- in bed at night and not be you know bored or unsure what she was reading and have a conversation with me that we had never had you know mm-hmm. and and my mfa teacher who's a published poet and a national book award finalist and like is revered by so many groups and organizations like held this in his hands and said you know how proud he was of me and how beautiful it was and like i want both you know mm-hmm. i want to both be that person in my academic meetings that says shit that people have to do a double take about cuz they're not sure if that voice or that person that says Fuck all the time is is as intelligent as that sentence she just said because I am and I and I do believe that there are so many people we're still leaving behind and so many people whose stories could be told you know um, about the very interesting life that yes I think we should gaze hard
0: at you are literally living your writing process all the fucking like, time <laughs> yeah like it's hard queer, queer this shit up like it's not black and white yeah. I am the MFA woman and I am the you know working class poor woman from mm-hmm. Virginia that has a traumatic past like right yeah and wow like what a um, look what
1: the system has done to make so many people think that they can't look closely at their lives I I mean my you know, thinking about, like, confessional – confessionality again and, like, these ways that, like, even answering that question sometimes – I mean, with you, of course, I want to talk about that because I know we get it. But, like, sometimes, like – if, if I ever get to the point where I'm like on a panel at like WP and someone talks about that, I'm going to be like, I respectfully don't want to answer that question because I think we should stop asking it. Which question? Like, what do you think about confessional poetry
0: or whatever? Oh, you know what yeah. I mean?
1: Like, I just, yeah. I just want to be like, you're asking the wrong questions. You know what I mean? Because right. that makes people nervous to tell stories about their lives. Like, think about how long we have like waited. Like, my students, 18 year olds are assumed to be vain and obsessed with themselves and obsessed with technology and, selfies and blah, 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 blah. I don't actually think any of that is true. I think mm-hmm. that language is designed by adults that are uncomfortable in their bodies and uncomfortable with how fast the world is moving. and uncom- are
0: crazy victims of the patriarchy. Of
1: course. <laughs> and crazy victims of not being able to look closely at themselves. I have friends in their right. 40s that like can't make a sound, you know, that that would in a yoga class that would help them express. And that's not their right. fault, you know what I mean? But like, just make a sound. Like what? Like we are so afraid to make a sound yeah. out of our own body. That's connected to our nervous system, the, the major nerves that connect to the brainstem, that connect to hormones and connective tissue and fluidity in the body. Like it's all connected, you know? Like, so we think that they're so uncomfortable with themselves and yet are so comfortable with themselves and obsessed with themselves and they're not. And all they want is for someone to sit beside them and say, your story is really interesting. And looking closely at what you think is a very mundane life is
0: valuable. I already see it happening with sixth graders as a sixth yeah. grade teacher. It's like they mm-hmm. have incredibly profound stories to tell. I mean, at 11 years old, they've gone through more trauma than I have in my lifetime. But mm-hmm. um, but you can already see them shutting down shutting themselves down um i mean it takes a profound amount of healed adults
1: around you or uh, adults in healing you know around you and systems in healing around you to give you the space to process trauma at a young age you know so it makes sense to me and what we do matters and doesn't matter but it does matter. It, it it matters because, like a little, a little bit, a little, the little doors, the little windows, the little pinpricks in in people's lives, like I I do think matter. I I actually will insist that they matter because that is why I'm still alive. It wasn't the entire system changing. It was the tiny moments with people that insisted and showed me another way and mirrored that for me instead
0: of just like making me, you know? You said the reason I'm still alive. I've thought about that a lot for myself. Like what the hell has kept me here after, you know, through all this trauma, I have a a close friend, Ken, that always is like, like, it's amazing that you're alive and like still kind of thriving and like which it's makes kind me kind of tragic, tragic. Well, it makes me laugh when he says that cuz he's a funny well, guy. It's
1: a, but it's but important I was, like I mean he's funny but he's t- he's he's somebody who knows you really well who's naming something for you because language and hearing things in language and like names helps us create the story. It's right. like everything's a story, everything. Everything is a story. Right. You know, and in in language and words that comes from the mind's processes. Right. And a feeling in the body um exists as a thought first.
0: Yes, it does. I, I don- mean, it
1: doesn't, yeah, it doesn't just like, kind of does like that is, no, that it is does. how the body works. Right. And it's like, It's hard and it's not super easy and it's a process of changing, but like, that's kind of what I'm doing in this book too, is I'm insisting and naming the stories as they existed at the time. Mm -hmm. And many of these have been revised. Like the poem Fall um, is about when I fell in love with my, my, my ex and I wrote that when we were together, and I I I revised it several times over like a year or two, and then at one second prize and split this rock's poetry contest, and it's still on their website, and it exists in an entirely different form, with a different ending and with a different um, uh, with a different like kind of urgency, and I did change it um, many times over the years, and then more after we broke up, and some people would say like is that allowed, and I'd say absolutely, (laughs) do what (laughs) you want. I mean, is it a better poem or a worse poem? I don't know. Sometimes, like, when I read that poem, I think that the first one had um, a different fluidity and a different kind of song that I really love and kind of miss. But isn't, like, that's why I changed it because I don't live that way. I didn't, yeah. like, that song doesn't exist in my body in the same way anymore. Like, it needed to change for me because I needed to shift the story. And emotion lives in the body for a few minutes. Like if you feel it and let it be and don't let the story attach to it and then then continue the story, emotion is felt and leaves the body in like a minute and a half.
0: If you don't like resist it kind of thing? If you don't.
1: If you don't talk about it, listen to your mind and change the story, or, or attach to the story, and and continue to talk about the story. Like if you just sit down and say, "I'm feeling sad," you just notice it. This person hurt me, and you actually, and not just notice it, like actually sit in the body feel the sadness, let it come over you. And it might take a little longer. I mean, I think that's like when it's done well, who knows, like (laughs) feel sadness, but like, and that's also like in a perfect form, like the mind is still gonna be the mind, right? So like your mind is still gonna wanna tell you like, but this, but that, and also, but she did this and she did that or whatever. And like, this means this about you. Um, But that's the practice of, of being with
0: stories and being with language, right? Is that like recognizing that like, we're not our thoughts. It's also the practice of sobriety for me. Like that's my work, right? now is sit feel it like feel it you're not going to die no you're actually not i know because of like the way that we learn to protect ourselves from emotions as traumatized children it feels like life Mm -hmm. or death and that's why i would you know that's why i mean that's why writing this First draft of the memoir for me has been so like riddled with heavy drinking, hard. (laughs) Like yeah, it's like it's life or death. But you know, my work right now is to unlearn and relearn. You know how to just feel emotions without attaching, creating a narrative. I don't know. It's like metacognition, talking back to your thoughts, kind of stuff.
1: I've never, I never liked the word surrender for a very long time, but I've considered that lately. Now that I have my own kind of felt sense of God, that and I'm not afraid of the word God anymore because it's not a Christian God or a, even a textual God in some ways, though I do think I do like some texts. But um, but just the felt sense of being alive is, is something that I'm really interested in um, being kind of my only mission. Like I want to do all the other things, but like, I want, I want the felt sense of being alive. Like, what's the point of living to fucking live <laughs> like that's, it, you know, and it's to feel it. And it's, and, and, and also like, there are no monks or perfect people that have done this work and named it for us on this planet. And I, I, I mentioned Harriet the other day, cause I saw the Harriet Tubman movie and I know that it's been kind of a little controversial, but I still thought it was quite beautifully made. Um. And I like that they focus on her visions because I like that the Western world still thinks that she was beat on her head and there was seizures. Right. And that's one, and that, because that is one truth when we look at what is the brain and how do we define what a seizure is. Mm-hmm. And yet she insisted on her visions as being what allowed her to hear God and whether she thought God was from the Bible that was you know, forced upon her um, in slavery mm. uh, and Jesus and the Lord um to her god was a voice that was justice that was love at all costs that was like and it was a practice of listening to it when she could and following that voice and whose voice was it is god out there or is it some just a voice like i don't fucking know and i'm not interested in like naming it and dog, making it dogmatic but i am interested in you know that these stories that the western world has like almost negated um, from our ability to talk about, unless it's like only religion or only seizures. Like, no, <laughs> I want something that, like I want, I want what poets and mystics do. I want what, like, yeah. the, the yogic, the actual yogic scriptures were looking at and what Buddhist scriptures had looked at and other texts that I don't know as much about that I won't name. But like, I want those people's stories because they never sat down and perfectly got to know their emotions and then change their stories. It was the lifelong process of it. Like, they still sat on hills to. Notice the stories that the mind will make up. Like they didn't stop. They didn't like get it and then suddenly feel perfectly and it was over. You know, it was always a relationship to coming back again and again and again. It was a cyclical, nonlinear narrative of living a life.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. You can buy Tara Shea Burke's poetry collection, Animal Like Any Other, at finishinglinepress.com or on Amazon. We hope you'll tune in again. Thank you and see you next time.